Right, I'm going to start with a word of prayer and then we'll jump right in. Uh, dear Father, thanks so much for this uh, lesson. Thanks for the great <laughs> truths that we can uh, glean from, from your word. We pray that as we hear that you would uh, aid us to listen well and to respond faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today, we're, well, for the next two weeks, we're doing a series on race and Christianity. Um, so today, my goal is to just talk really basic, yes, you're done, <laughs> to, to just lay a really basic uh, foundation from the Bible about what's kind of like some of the things, uh, some of the bad things that have come up out of um, theology of, of the Bible regarding race. And then some of the more positive aspects. And then next week we'll talk about, um, yeah, so uh, how can we actually apply it? What does it actually mean for our church? And how can we move towards multi-ethnicity? Um, so starting from the top, I'll just read this paragraph. Um, depending on who you talk to, racism is still either really important or it's not really important. It's like, it was important back in the 50s and 60s, but now it's like largely been solved. And the only problem is the people who keep bringing it up and they're the, you know, real problem. Uh, and so, you know, what does that mean? Like, so historically racism has been a huge problem in the church and even faithful Jesus-loving disciples believed in slavery. They justified it from the Bible. So let's look at how they came to such conclusions. All right, so the first theme, debunking poor theology. So we're going to just talk a, a couple of things about yeah, places where people have misinterpreted the Bible and used it to justify racism or, um, or apartheid or slavery or any sorts of things, right? So let's start with number one, the curse of Ham. Arnold, you want to read that for us? Yeah, okay. Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vine garden. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant, a servant of servants shall, be to, shall he be to his brothers. Thank you. So the curse of Ham, um, this is after Noah and the flood has already happened, and they're settling down, and then Noah gets drunk one day, and his youngest son, Ham, um, sees him drunk and naked and starts ridiculing him. And then once Noah finds out, he like curses him. And so this is this has been some people would say like one of the most abused and most damaging interpretations in like the history of the church. Um, this has basically become like the standard central like excerpt um, to justify slavery um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the people say that um, Ham uh, that this uh, refers to all the descendants of Ham and not just Canaan, even though it says cursed be Canaan. And so all the descendants of Ham. Number two, Ham means black or burnt. And so, so some people would say that all black people must become slaves. 
and must be inferior. And then thirdly, it says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Um, and so presumably Japheth, one of his other brothers, is supposed to be the white man, and Ham is supposed to be the black man. And to ignore this, to deny this, would be to deny the infallibility of scriptures, some would say. Um, and so it hinged on the acceptance of Negro slavery in the uh, 19th, 18th century. So let's just let's just look at this real quick. Uh, for some reason, um, there's a couple of reasons why this isn't actually endorsing slavery for uh, the modern world. That when this was pronounced 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, that it wasn't somehow, um, it didn't still have implications into today. A um, couple things. This is just from, by the way, I'm taking my notes from this book. So if you guys want to look into it more, I can lend it to you or we can talk more about it. Uh, but just a couple things. Uh, first of all, it wasn't all the descendants of Ham that were cursed. It was Canaan. And this was fulfilled when Israel invaded Canaan through Joshua, and then it was eventually they were totally subjugated under the monarchy with uh, David and Solomon. And secondly, the Canaanites are actually ethnically close to Israel. They're actually, uh, because they're from the same like, area, they actually have like similar languages, they have similar cultures, they probably have similar skin colors. So they're Middle Eastern. So they're Middle Eastern. They're not like, yeah, from Africa, black Africa. And so because of that, this was a theological difference and not, not had nothing to do with skin color or um, it had nothing to do with race, essentially. Any questions about this just first one and how it might... Well, the Christopher, yeah. Well, um, the bad theology must have some logic to it, so... How did they come to the idea that Ham represents Africa? Um, again, just what I said from earlier about how Ham, um, and it can be, in, it can mean black or burnt. Oh, oh, the, the, the meaning of the word. Okay. Mm -hmm. So because of that, people are like, oh, everybody who's black must be related to Ham, and therefore they must somehow be slaves or inferior to the So again, this is just one place where it's just been really um, badly abused. Okay, secondly, we'll go to how early Israel was actually um, not an ethnic community. So the bad theology says that early Israel was just like God saved this one narrow race of people, but the idea that actually God saved a people um, so, Ben, can you read Genesis 41? Okay. Fifty before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asena, and the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph, 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh for. He said, God has made, has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And then, can you read Exodus 12? 
And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of Egyptians. So they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. All right, so if we go back just to like the, the origins of um, the family, like Abraham and Jacob and um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, there we go. Um, they originated in like Mesopotamia. They moved to Canaan. Yes, Judah. I agree. Um, and then if you remember Israel's sons, Judah and Simeon were actually married to Canaanites. Joseph was married to an Egyptian. And then they spent 400 years in Egypt. And then that's when they become like known as the sons of Israel. And so there was a lot of like ethnic mixing that, were, that was happening from the outset, from the origin of the family. Um, and so these mixed elements were in Egypt for 400 years. And so most likely, it's not that like... It's just this one pure, you know, superior race that God somehow chose. But it was a family. It was a, it was just a mixed group of people that God chose to save. Uh, and so there was some biological elements, but there were also a lot of... Um, it wasn't only from one family. Uh, and the second part of, in Exodus... We see this weird phrase in verse 38. It says, A mixed multitude also went up with them. There's a lot of questions about who these mixed multitudes are, but basically a lot of people would agree that these are also some of the other slaves and some of the other laborers that were in Egypt. and that had um, So they had been captured. Uh, most likely it was like in Egypt when they were going around and like warring other countries, they took some slaves back. And so this mixed multitude is most likely non-Israelites that also uh, had integrated into the community of faith when they journeyed with them into the desert and was integrated into the, the tabernacle and all the other worship forms. And this shows that many who became Israelites were not Israelites simply by biological reasons, but also theological ones, that this mixed multitude had gone up. And what's of particular interest is that part of these, part of this mixed multitude that had gone, would have included black Africans. Um, there's this one country or I don't know nation state just south of Egypt called Kush at the time, um, and there were just a lot of evidence about how yeah, Egypt had raided them a lot. Um, they were integrated into the life of Egypt, and so there were a lot of black Africans that joined the Israelites into the desert. Any questions about early Israel being an ethnic community? I know this is like really uh, non-controversial. Nobody would say like, you know, we should just select one superior race, but this is really basic and we just need to lay this down so that we can start talking about other stuff in the future. Any questions or comments? All right. All right, uh, let's go to the third point. Intermarriage is frowned upon. Wait, you want to read the 
paragraph on from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy seven. Mm-hmm. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Thank you. Um, So just to let you guys know, this is something that is still very relevant um, that even in my own family, <laughs> intermarriage is seen as like, you know, this unbiblical, I mean like, yeah, intermarriage is seen as, uh, yeah, just uh, really bad. Um, that I heard my grandma, she's like very involved in the church, and she was like, Chinese people, they're, they're, not, they're not spiritual, you need to marry a Korean person. <laughs> and so this is not some like... You know, antiquated, like really um, old concept, but it's still very existent. And I think if you, also, you know, it has a lot of resonance, particularly black and white. Right. Yeah. yeah, if you go to the Midwest or to the South, um, there are still a lot of people who would say. Um, Especially if a black man marries a white woman, um, it's seen as. Like one of the uh, one of the fundamentalist um, Christian schools in the South, like up until a few years ago, they wouldn't allow um, racists to date each other. <laughs> no inter justification. Um, I'm sure this was one of them, uh, but they had like multiple ones. So uh, they uh, yeah they just said like if if you're not you can't date within or outside your own race. Wait, this, this is a Bible college. This is Bob Jones University. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and like up until a few years ago, like even like as recently like five years ago, you can do it. Of course, I don't think you were allowed to date much at all. Yeah, <laughs> you can't be walking on separate sidewalks. That's true. Things like that. So. You weren't allowed to look the other race, the other sex in the eyes. That was just like anathema. Yeah. <laughs> so no interracial dating either. Yeah. Not only no dating. Marriage. Okay. Um. So yeah, this is something again that's very <laughs> real. For us today. Um, but let's look at Numbers 12 and we'll talk about it a little bit. Harry, you want to read that? Yeah. Uh, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And God said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in reality. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. So when I was doing research on this, I did not know that Moses had married a black woman. Um, that very clearly, yeah, the Cushite woman, again, we talked earlier about how Cush was this 
um, nation state that was just south of Egypt. Modern day Ethiopia. Ethiopia, Sudan, I think is near there. Um, yeah, and that he was married to a Cushite woman. And even back then, Ar Miriam and Aaron were just, how can you marry a black woman? Or there was some... I like the poetic justice for her being turned white as snow. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be white? That was the judgment. <laughs> All the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, that Moses, in this was the, the leader of the you know God's people. That He was like in the, um, this like good place with God. Um, and that he... That yeah, he married this black woman and God approved of it. And in fact, he went so far as to punish those who disapproved of it. And later on, Moses had to pray for Miriam. Do you think necessarily it was about color then, though? I mean, they had, they had national, like, strife, international strife with people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, various laws and customs that they were dealing with. And I don't necessarily think it was all... Probably related to color. Right. Um, one of the things I was saying was like back then it was common for uh, men to marry their sisters. And so one reason why Miriam might have also voiced out was because instead of marrying her, he chose to marry another person outside of the family. Mm. Um, but I think there's, I don't think it's like mutually exclusive. I think there's probably, Many. Uh, yeah, a couple, of, a number of reasons. But the fact that maybe even if that hadn't been what they had voiced out against, that yeah, that it was seen as something that was approved by God to marry interracially. Um, and so, yeah, now that I found this verse, I'm going to show it to my grandma. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Any questions or comments um, about interracial marriage? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the reason why God forbid it, it says um, in Deuteronomy right afterwards, the reason why God forbids interracial marriage at that time was because in verse 4, 4, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That it was a theological reason, it wasn't a, a nationalistic reason. Yeah, I think that's, it, I, I, I don't even think you should say it's God forbid interracial marriage. I think she said that God forbid you from marrying a pagan, someone who didn't believe. And so, for example, if you look at Ruth, Ruth is a pagan, right, from a pagan people, Moabites, but she converted. She says, your God is, you know, the God of Abraham is my God, and then that's why she is able to marry, um, um, Boaz? Huh? Boaz. Boaz, yes. Um, she's able to marry Boaz, and it wasn't, he wasn't breaking this law. You know, because she had converted, right? So it isn't a law against marrying other races. It's a law against marrying non-believers. So can we assume that this Kushite woman, I guess, eventually converted or converted before he got married? I think that's the assumption that we should have, that, that Moses' wife was a believer. Um, one speculation is that this Kushite woman had been part of the mixed multitude that had come up out of Egypt with um, the other Israelites. Had their, you know, had joined. Well, and, like the only way they could be coming out with them is if they had obeyed the rule about 
you know, the Passover, mm -hmm. right? Blood, yeah. So that already said that they were sort of like, even if it was just like I want to survive, it was I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So, so I think um, yeah. Deuteronomy seven still applies to us, um, but it doesn't apply across national or ethnic lines. But it applies to us in terms of God commands us to uh, marry a believer. Um, oh, I, was, I don't want to interrupt. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so I think like you can marry a, a fellow Chinese person, but that person isn't a believer. You're violating Deuteronomy seven. Um, and then uh, if you marry someone who's not of uh, your same race, but this person is a believer, you are definitely keeping Deuteronomy 7. You can add something. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that um, I can remember what I was going to say. Um, like, we have to remember that when they gave their daughters to them, they, like, gave, they were gone. They were, like, you know, they gave them away. Bye-bye forever. You're part of their culture now. Um, and also, like, when he says the opposite way, you know, don't take their daughters to your sons, they had to, you know, their daughters came with all sorts of goods and probably promises and hopes, you know, for union of the families. Um, so, you know, you're kind of indebting yourself to them in that way, too, if you're doing that, so... Yeah, because when uh, Solomon married all these other women, or when Ahab had married Jezebel, yeah, they just influenced them. Like Solomon and Ahab just started building temples for other gods, and uh, it totally does uh, have the potential to um, bring fall away from God. And so, just a point about how there are, are uh, in my family or in the Midwest between white and blacks. That there are people who would say, like, you know, um, I don't. It doesn't matter if they're a faithful Christian. Just marry someone in your own race who might be of a more nominal faith. You know, who might not even be a believer. Who might be. Um, but it's better to marry someone within your own race rather than marry a believer in another race. And then, so we'll talk. We're gonna talk about that next about why what that says. Um, so that's just some of the bad theology that's been around. In the past few centuries. Now, let's look at a more positive side. Number one, our primary identity is in Christ. Yvonne, do you want to read the passage on Ephesians? But now in Christ Jesus, he who once were far off has been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Thank you. And Melissa... The paragraph on Galatians. For as many of you who, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
Yeah, so both of these passages are, are getting at the fact that we are now one in Christ, that our primary identity, um, our primary um, yeah, play, like place of belonging is not with the world's categories of like race and social status and whatever else, but that our primary um, identification is in Christ, um, that we have been created in that there's one new man in Christ, that there's no longer the two. Um, this referred to like the Jewish and Greek or the Gentile conflict. But I think it can be used for uh, other racial tensions too. The idea that um, whatever hostility, whatever dividing wall that there once might have been between races, that now in Christ Jesus um, that has been abolished and we are made into one new man. Now, the paragraph on Galatians, I think it's important to note that um, th- this is not advocating an elimination of all distinctions. That um, it's like that there's no differences between men and women, that there's no difference, differences between Jews and Greeks, uh, but that it's actually eliminating the, at- the wrongful attitudes of superiority or inferiority between. Um, yeah, different people, since we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so there are still very real differences. And again, we'll talk about um, some of that next week. But I think what it's teaching essentially is that we can be united, uh, even though we're diverse. But it's uh, just as um, I think Michael taught about, taught about the unity and diversity in the Holy Spirit and how that relates to gender roles. And in the same way that, yeah, that even within different ethnicities that we can be united in Christ and still be diverse ethnically. So again, our primary identity is in Christ. So I think earlier when we were talking about how like there are some people who would say it's okay to marry someone in your own race that's not a believer, but you can't marry a believer in another race. That just shows that they're still thinking primarily um, in terms of like the world's categories, in terms of um, their skin color or their social status or how much money they have in the bank rather than who they are in Jesus. You know, that their primary identity. Is there any questions or comments about this? No, pretty basic. Ben, got it? All right, cool. Uh, let's, let's move along. Um, second point, the early church was, uh, was multi-ethnic. Michael, you want to read the long passage on Acts? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was, was hearing them in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, mocking said, They are filled with new wine. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation, for those who received his word were baptized. 
and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Alright, so this is in Pentecost back right after Jesus has been uh, taken up to heaven. And then um, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Tongues of fire come down. And then Peter preaches and boom, 3,000 people are saved. And these 3,000 souls are not just 3,000 people from one ethnic group, but in verse 9 that in verse nine through 11, that long list of different areas that had come to Jerusalem and had heard the gospel and had been converted, and that, this, that these souls are added to the church. Yeah, and this church is like, everybody's speaking in different languages. I don't know how they might have preached or done services back then, but maybe they just kept speaking in tongues or something. But the fact that, yeah, that there are all these different ethnicities, even with the language barrier, even with um, the ethnic barriers, all these things that came up, um, they still were added to the church. And we read later on to Acts about how some of those things happened, uh, how they did church a little bit more. But... I think what's important to realize is that from the beginning, people of all, all of the world, known world at the time were just hearing the gospel and coming um, to church together, coming, being united in Christ. Any questions about that? All right, let's jump to Acts 13. Man, do you want to read a paragraph? Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Very cool. So um, this is right when you know Saul and Barnabas get their calling. But what's important to see is that at the church in Antioch, prophets and teachers. So these are this is like the offices in the churches, like people who are in leadership, like formal leadership roles or positions. Now we see that there's Barnabas and Saul, right, who are both Jewish. But Simeon, who is called Niger, Niger means uh, is Latin for black, so this is most likely a black person. And then we also see Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is, uh, was a Roman province in Libya, which is in North Africa. You guys might have heard a little bit about the conflict in Libya. Um, but Lucius was probably also black, um, therefore. And so we see that even in this leadership, um, even in the leadership of this church in Antioch, that it was very diverse. Uh, Manan, who knows, maybe he's Gentile. Um, but, again, that the early church was multi-ethnic from the outset, um, that its leadership was multi-ethnic, that its congregation was multi-ethnic, and that um, they continued to fellowship together, that they prayed and worshipped and fasted, and that God blessed them and, you know, was like multiplying and growing it like crazy. Alright, we're, we're going to jump to the last point. Number three. Tommy, can you read that short paragraph, Revelation? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Yeah, that this is probably like one of the strongest pictures for why we might want to, why multi-ethnicity is biblical, that in heaven 
that this is John, right? This is John's vision at the, in the book of Revelation. That he sees a vision of heaven. And he doesn't see just white people singing. He doesn't just see you know, yellow people uh, praying. But that he sees a huge, a huge throng from every nation, from all languages, tribes, peoples. That they are worshiping the Lamb. They are clothed in white. And that when we, um, as a church... Yeah, move away from that, that we're actually moving away from what's biblical, from what's been revealed, that yeah, in heaven there are multi-ethnic peoples, congregation, worshiping. Any questions about everything that we've, from anything that we've touched on so far? I mean, that's... I would like comment like in Acts to, for these, uh, for the early church to see like a group of people that just mix races was it completely jarring to everyone there because this was like completely unprecedented. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like, for us it's no big deal because we, we're on other races all the time, but for these people it was like, it just, like, I think like, if an unbeliever were to look at it, it was just like, they wouldn't even be able to contemplate what's going on to see these different mixes, races mixing together. Mm-hmm. It's it was common that there were like race riots mm-hmm. in uh, these uh, Mediterranean cities. Yeah all the time, and particularly at Antioch, that this happened, it was amazing that Antioch was designed with these large dividing walls and with the ethnic communities, and the walls were garrisoned by Roman troops so that you kind of keep the ethnicity from killing each other. And you have this freak church where everyone's <laughs> sitting together, peacefully loving each other, caring for each other, and it was like completely unprecedented. And uh, it was in Antioch that they were first called Christians, and so it's amazing. Oh, I was going to say that the temple had the court of the Gentiles, so there was a place for them to worship, but even then, the Jews, I'm sure, felt a sense of superiority because they could go further in, you know. But also, they they had set up shop there and, like, kind of ruined it, and that obviously, I mean, that's another argument for God being really angry because Jesus comes in and turns over the tables, in the court of the Gentiles, where the people that weren't Jewish were supposed to be worshiping, and so they kind of pushed them out, you know. So it really turned it upside down. Yeah, and, and you know, I want to say maybe this is a little bit tangential, but I feel like um, a lot of times you see uh, when the gospel goes to other places in other countries, a lot of times people say, "Oh, Christianity is uh, the white man's religion," you know. And I think, historically, that's not true. Because if you look at the early church, it was an extremely multi-ethnic church. And the first converts, some of the first converts were black Africans, like the Ethiopian eunuch. And so the claim or the argument that Christianity is a white man's religion is really not accurate. You know, in, many, in many senses, um, uh, European Caucasians came late to the scene. You know, so. Well, I mean, they sent missionaries up that way. No, exactly, they sent yeah. missionaries every direction. Absolutely, just, yeah. You know, history. Who's writing the history? <laughs> and even now, I would say the most vibrant activity of the gospel and explosion of the church is not in the United States or Europe but it's in the global south. You know, it's in places like China and Brazil and uh, Nigeria. And so the church is extremely multi-ethnic. I don't know what year it is, but they say statistically that Africa will be sending more missionaries to us at, at some year. And I don't know the year it is, but 
Like some of you, are, they're going to be sending more missionaries this way, thank God, than, than we are that way, because their missionaries are probably better than <laughs> We need them. Yeah, we need them. Uh, and so we're going to, you know, that's, we'll touch on that more next week. Well, this is a good uh, cliffhanger. Cliffhanger? Cliffhanger. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you save a multi-ethnic people, that we can be in fellowship, that we can worship you together because you are God that is diverse yet united. And so we pray, Father, that as we continue to ponder these things and hear that you would give to us a faithful response. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.